Hey folks, another busy week of politically charged legal news making the headlines. Attorney General Merrick Garland issued new DOJ guidance that limits when prosecutors can secretly obtain reporters' phone and email records. Meanwhile, a federal judge in Texas is prohibiting the Department of Homeland Security from approving new applications to the DACA program, a program that permits undocumented people who arrived in the U.S. as children to work in the country without the threat of being deported. And the DOJ Inspector General released a report that criticizes the FBI for failing to pursue sex abuse charges against Larry Nassar, the former USA Gymnastics team national doctor. Joyce Vance and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we are sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And for a limited time, use the code JOYCE for 50% off the annual membership price. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. So there's something fairly dramatic that happened this week, just on Monday. There's been all this controversy dating back many years about what protections the First Amendment should afford reporters, journalists who are in the business of gathering news. And when they get leaked information from within the government, and that information is sensitive, it is against the law to do that. Prosecutors historically have tried to figure out ways to prosecute serious leaks, especially if it compromises intelligence. And one way in which prosecutors have over the years tried to do that, and it would make sense in ordinary circumstances if it wasn't the journalistic profession, and it wouldn't be any issue and wouldn't be controversial, is you subpoena the person to whom the leak occurred. In this case, however, that's people who are in the fourth estate and work in a profession that's the only one, the only private profession that's mentioned in the Constitution, the First Amendment, freedom of the press. And so this conflict emerges between whether or not reporters should be compelled to reveal sources versus a nation state's interest, you know, America's interest, in protecting against breaches of national security. And over time, it's been a difficult balance. There have been arguments about it and lots of debates about it. But what Merrick Garland has done is, you know, pretty dramatically, in a change from prior policy, issued guidance within the Justice Department to all prosecutors that basically says under almost no circumstances, and we'll talk about the exceptions, no prosecutors can use compulsory process in a leak investigation to get information from journalists about the sources of their information. How big a deal is this? In some ways, a big deal. In others, not. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's a big deal because it's a pretty bold statement in favor of the First Amendment and the freedom of the press. This is always a balancing act, right? How do you balance First Amendment rights against others? Well, here Garland's made it pretty clear where he strikes the balance. And I know you have stories from your time in the Senate about how elusive legislation was, and I I hope you'll share some of them because it is important for people who believe in the First Amendment and the free press. By the same token, it's in some ways less important. You know, I was recounting to you that in my eight years as a U.S. attorney and in my previous tenure as the appellate chief in my office, we never— tried or considered issuing a subpoena to a member of the media, in part because internally that's frowned upon even without this policy, but because these are very rare subpoenas. This isn't something that's happening every day in a functioning Justice Department, right? No, it doesn't happen 
frequently at all. In fact, it's very, very, very rare. On the rare occasions it happens and it comes out, it's a big deal and very controversial for obvious reasons. Look, and w- one thing that maybe is worth commenting on, you know, there's a reason why in lots of areas, in both in the Justice Department and elsewhere, that high-level approvals are required. And some people might say, well, you know, that's not a law, that's not legislation, that's not being overseen by a judge. But the way human beings work is if you have a junior prosecutor at my office or your old office, and they realize that in order to issue a subpoena to a newspaper, they have to go up and get the approval of the U.S. attorney himself or herself, people don't like to, people don't like to do that. And in other cases, if you have to get the approval from the attorney general and you're a prosecutor in Kansas, that's a very daunting thing. So it does have some you know, proper regulatory effect, and that's what the rule was before. But it doesn't happen a lot. It happens very, very infrequently. By the way, there are some exceptions, and we'll get to them in a moment. But, you know, subpoenas are issued sometimes to journalists who have written a story, and there's a trial, and you want to prove the authenticity of the story and the fact of the story, you would call the journalist. But that's not revealing any sources, so that's a, a different kind of thing. Now, the one thing I want to ask you about, you, you use the word balance. What's interesting and striking about the new guidance from Merrick Garland is he says the Department of Justice has long employed procedural protections and a balancing test, you know, the balancing of press protection against national security concerns. And not only does he, does he strike the balance differently, he says literally there are, quote, there are, however, shortcomings to any balancing test in this context. And he goes on to say, quote, a balancing test may fail to properly weight the important national interest in protecting journalists from compelled disclosure of information revealing their sources, end quote. He seems to do away with the balancing test altogether. That's what's striking to me. His thumb is pretty heavy on the scale. You know, there are a couple of rare exceptions, but this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. His jurisprudence in the area of the First Amendment was really imbued with his belief that because the Constitution— creates and you know this profound first amendment right of a free press that in order to fully effectuate that guarantee of a free press you have to have policies like this you have to always put your thumb heavily on the scale i don't think this is a surprise to anyone it follows president biden's comments that his administration wouldn't engage in this kind of behavior and of course the trigger for all of this was the disclosure that the Trump administration, particularly as it approached the end of its time in office, but but perhaps um, throughout, was targeting journalists who wrote stories not necessarily that were dangerous or that implicated national security, but that perhaps cast people in the Trump administration in a light that they would have preferred not to have been cast in. And I'm sort of looking at you, Jeff Sessions, and thinking about stories, you know, about his conversations with the Russian ambassador Kislyak and other stories along that vein that they really took issue with. But you mentioned that this directive came from Biden. This is an example of the kind of policy prescription that it is appropriate for a sitting president to give to a Justice Department, not hey, go protect my ally, or can you go launch an investigation of my adversary? But a general, neutral policy change, like being you know more hospitable to the First Amendment and eliminating the balancing test or, or creating a different kind of balancing test, you agree that's totally appropriate for a president to do? 
Yeah, I do. And I think that this is a great place to draw that distinction, right? Presidents don't get to have a say-so in who's getting prosecuted criminally or, or even in some significant civil cases and how those cases should be opened, investigated, and conducted. This is policy. This is the appropriate engagement between the White House and the Justice Department. So just to review some of the guidance, the new prohibition applies to pretty much everything. You and I have said subpoenas a few times, but it's not just subpoenas. It's also subpoenas, warrants, court orders issued pursuant to various court orders issued pursuant to various statutes. And even in civil investigations, or something you and I have had signed, I'm sure signed many times, civil investigative demand, which is a kind of subpoena outside the criminal context. And it applies regardless of whether the legal process seeks testimony, physical documents, telephone toll records, metadata, or digital content. And it also applies not just to compulsory process towards journalists and news organizations directly, but even third-party service providers of any of the foregoing, which is the normal way that you get toll records and and phone information and, and communications from people in any event. But we should make clear, by the way, notwithstanding the language of striking a balancing test, that there are exceptions. And there are circumstances under which even Merrick Garland, who's made you know quite a shift and a, and a rhetorical shift, where prosecutors can seek information from journalists. And they're kind of interesting and they're kind of obvious, I think. And I don't think it's getting too much pushback from the journalistic community. So it does not apply when a member of the news media is under investigation for a violation of criminal law and, uh, you know, bless my heart, such as insider trading. So for example, <laughs> so for example, if, if a journalist is not acting in the capacity of a journalist and is receiving a tip from someone who's the CFO of a Fortune 500 company and then trades on it, the fact that you have an ID from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or someplace else doesn't give you immunity from being investigated for crimes that you may have been involved with. I don't think anybody's going to be having a problem with that. Preet, did you really just say, bless my heart? No, I, We're I meant bless- going to make a Southerner of you I yet. meant, I actually meant <laughs> bless Merrick Garland's heart, because why, why bless my heart? <laughs> also, by the way, and this seems obvious too, but it's interesting that it's, it's, it's reduced to writing. If you're a journalist and you're a recipient of information that constitutes a leak or, or a violation of law, that's fine, but the manner in which you came into receipt of that information is important. If you came into receipt of that information by yourself breaking and entering or using criminal methods or hacking or something, no protection applies to you, and that is as it should be as well. So it seems to me that, that among the exceptions, maybe the most important one, at least if there's some hope of moving this forward into future administrations and, and getting the legislative action that Garland likes, is the clear statement that it does not apply to folks who are agents of a foreign power or members of a foreign terrorist organization. This has always been one of those issues of uncertainty. You can have someone who's a legitimate journalist, right? Somebody who's at RT, but to the extent that they're acting as an agent of a foreign government, they don't fall within this prohibition. Right, and probably, you know, the exception that matters the most to people because, you know, we do have to protect the country. And so it does not apply, the prohibition does not apply Quote, when the use of compulsory legal process is necessary to prevent an imminent risk of death or serious bodily harm, including terrorist acts, kidnappings, specified offenses against a minor, incapacitation or destruction of critical infrastructure. So if that's in the mix, and there's a lot of work being done by the word imminent, imminent risk of death or serious bodily harm, and that's something that would be debated by people, 
and would be debated within the department. In that case, we don't stand on ceremony so much and people can get information from reporters and journalists. And you would also, by the way, in circumstances like that, you would imagine there's a back and forth before the issuance of compulsory process and the good faith journalists at US media organizations, if persuaded that giving up that information would save lives in a day or two days or three days, would understand also that sometimes the First Amendment has to give way to you know, protection of lives. And the policy contemplates that in a case where a journalist is willing to be subpoenaed, that you can go ahead as a prosecutor and issue one. That seems to be that situation, right, where there's an imminent danger, but the journalist wants to be subpoenaed rather than just handing it over. Prosecutors are authorized to go ahead. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that happens from time to time. I mean, it's often worthwhile remembering that prosecutors are, you know, Americans first and citizens first. And the same is true of journalists. And we take our responsibilities seriously if you're a prosecutor or a journalist. But, but at the end of the day, you also have responsibilities to the country and to your fellow citizens. For prosecutors, that means you just can't be overly focused on getting the case done, getting the case done. The values of the country are important. And the First Amendment and free speech and free press are, are among those values. And at the same time, if you're on the other side of the coin and you're in the press, protection of human life is also important. And so here we are back again talking about balancing, it seems. The jurisprudence of, of the First Amendment has always permitted some erosion of, of your First Amendment rights. Typically, that's stated as, as a restriction, a legitimate restriction on the time, the manner, or the place that your First Amendment rights are being exercised. I think this policy that Garland has now put in place is very consistent with that long-term trend in the law. And it interests me because I think we're seeing his judicial style really being exerted in his behavior as an attorney general. Sometimes I like seeing that, and other times I'm less of a fan of it. But here, his understanding of the overall jurisprudence, the issues, the rights that have to be balanced in this area, leads to a pretty good policy. And you were talking about how tough it is for folks to go to a U.S. attorney for approval um, and, and how that sometimes deters people from using investigative techniques that might be closer to the line. In this case, now having to go to the deputy attorney general likely means that people will only do this when it really is imperative. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because every time there's a memo that comes out from the attorney general, I smile because there's always a line in it that says something like, like so in this guidance, Merrick Garland says, because the goal is to protect members of the news media in a manner that will be enduring... I'm asking the Deputy Attorney General to undertake a review of process to further explain, develop, and codify, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes on to say, as part of that review, the Deputy Attorney General will examine existing regulations. And I'm like, oh, Lisa Monaco, how much more stuff is Garland putting on your plate? <laughs> our, friend, our friend Lisa, every time there's a memo, and Lisa Monaco will direct and oversee a dramatic top-to-bottom review of everything going on in the department and in the world. And I just, I worry about her sometimes, but she can handle it. You know, when we were U.S. attorneys, Preet, and and when I would be working on some particularly difficult task, you usually duck this sort of stuff, but I was on the resource <laughs> allocation working group. I don't like committees, which Joyce. Which was, oh my God. I um, hate committees. I, I noticed that, uh, and probably a wise call on your choice, Fishman used to say, who was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, used to say, we can sleep when it's over. 
every time I see one of these memos that tasks the the deputy attorney general with yet a new major initiative, I think poor Lisa, she can sleep when it's over. <laughs> he can sleep when it's over. If anyone uh, I know in the country can handle it, it's Lisa. But now one of the other things, one of the other things that that Attorney General Garland has said is that the department should think about legislation that it can support and Congress should think about legislation that it can pass. And and you mentioned this earlier. I had a lot of experience back when I was in the Senate from 2005 to 2009. Basically, every session of Congress trying to pass the Free Flow of Information Act, of which my uh, boss at the time, Senator Schumer, was the lead Democratic sponsor. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. And for a limited time, use the code Joyce for 50% off the annual membership price. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. <laughs>